Amen. There is no other name. Amen? Amen. It is the greatest name among us that we know today. Open up to Mark, Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bible today, I do hope that you do. If you do not have a copy of the Word of God, we'd love to give you one. Uh, you can go by the Welcome Center and pick one of those up today. Or you can go online on, on your app store. You can download our app, North Goodland BC, in your app store. And uh, on our app, there is a Bible feature. And so you can have the Word of God through there. Or if you'd like to go to the Welcome Center and get a uh, paper copy of the Word of God, we'd love to have you do that as well. Uh, just our way of making sure you have God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 1, we're going to start in just a few minutes here reading a pretty familiar passage to some of us, maybe not to all of us. Um, but as I was kind of praying over where the Lord would have us to go this, this morning, um, and I really couldn't get away from two main things that kept just kind of hitting me all week. Uh, number one was what we talked about last week, that we talked about the 12 days of praise. And I pray that you have enjoyed uh, spending the last so many days, uh, just spending each day praising God, leading up to Thanksgiving Day, which will be the 12th day of praise. And so I pray that every day you've spent at least a few moments. Um, and again, it's not something we have to put out there for people to see. If, if you haven't made it known, uh, it's not like you're failing. Uh, it, it's something maybe even just personally. You want to just spend some time in your prayer time thanking God for some way that he has blessed you. And you are just glorifying him and God-centered this last week. And you are just humbly before him praising him for all that he has done in your life or what he is doing in others' lives around you. Maybe... You've praised him this week for how he's used you to impact someone else for Christ. Uh, sometimes I think we spend a lot of time thanking God for so-and-so, and I thank God for this person, I thank God for this and this and this and this. It's okay to stop and say, you know, God, thank you that you allowed me to be able to share Christ today. Thank you that you spoke through me in that way. Thank you that I was able to pray for that person today. It's okay to thank God for how he's using you. Like, it's not prideful or arrogant to make that known, again, because he's the center of that. The other thing I couldn't get away from this week, as I was thinking about what God would have us to talk about this morning, is communion. And I was thinking, God, what's a better way to praise you and to honor you than spending time at the communion table this morning? Amen? Spending time remembering that Jesus Christ, God himself, gave himself for us. That he died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again. And so as I was praying over, okay, God, where would you have us go this week? Man, I couldn't get away from just praising him and then communion this morning. And there was something that came to my mind this week that, that for those things to happen, for us to be able to praise him in all the goodness that he is, and to be able to celebrate communion, which is the focal point of our faith, right? That he died for us and that he rose again. Uh, we don't celebrate communion as a memorial to his death only, we celebrate because he died for us, but that he also rose again for us. And to seal our faith and to know that the, the sacrifice that he presented before the Father, the sacrifice for sin, was accepted by God the Father because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the sign that we have, that we know it was received by the Father. And so I kept thinking about the compassion of Jesus Christ this week. This, he is a compassionate Savior he had compassion on the lost. He had compassion on the religious. Now, he was hard on the religious, but you can't say he wasn't compassionate to them because even when he was preaching and teaching to the lost, he would look at the religious and give them opportunities to receive grace. He never denied them the opportunity to know the same saving knowledge that he was given to the woman at the well or to any other sinner in the community. And so when you think about the compassion 
of Christ, that we have a compassionate Savior. There's a passage that came to my mind, and I was kind of looking through some things in the Gospels here, and, and I love reading through the Gospels. Now, we know all of the Word of God is the Word of God. It's truth. Amen? It is, it is cover to cover. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, there's not one word in the Word of God that was not divinely intended, or rather maybe even superintended through the human authors, to be in the Word of God. It is fully and truly the Word of God. No matter whether you agree with it, whether I agree with it or not, it's the Word of God. But when you read through the Gospels, the reason I find just great joy in reading through the Gospels is I love reading about the encounters and the experiences of Christ. I love reading about the things that Jesus said, the things Jesus did, the way he interacted with other people, the way he interacted with the religious, the supposed sinners of the community. And we get to this passage in Mark chapter 1, and it's one that I've always found very amazing, and there's just so much in here. And so we're going to kind of break this down this morning as we talk about and dwell on the compassion of our Savior. So Mark chapter 1 in verse 29 says, And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So here we see these four names sound really familiar to us. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Who are these four? These are the disciples some of the first disciples, right, of Christ. And so he's going to this house to have a meal, verse 30. Uh, but Simon's wife's mother, Simon's wife's mother, lay sick of a fever, and Annan, they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lift her up. And immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. And we just sang about the power in the name of Christ. That there is no other name. The passage that Jeff read from Acts chapter 4. That there is no greater name. Everything the disciples did in the book of Acts, they give all the glory to God. All the glory to the name of Christ. It wasn't them doing it. It was Christ in them by the working of the Holy Spirit. And here we see Jesus perform an amazing miracle. An amazing moment. Not only in Jesus' life, but in the life of the apostles. In the life of Peter's mother-in-law, by the way, guys, love your mother-in-laws, okay? I mean, Jesus loved Peter's mother-in-law enough to heal her, okay? Some of you might be in the corner like, I don't know if I'm going to pray for that. I'm just kidding. You would pray for that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We all, I'm sure everybody loves their mother-in-laws. I'm just joking. There was one person that knew I was joking over here on the, on the right. Thank you for the laugh. Thank you for everyone else. Like he just said, don't pray for your mother-in-law to be healed. Get your purse, honey. We're leaving. We need to go, Okay. Here we see Jesus have this amazing moment in Peter's life. But, but think about this. And, and I want to really think on this a little bit here. Don't answer aloud, but did Jesus have to do this? I mean, did Jesus have to do what he does here? Was he bound in any way? Was he obligated and forced into doing this healing? And so I want to talk about the compassion of Christ. Not just that he has on the sick or the possessed, as we're going to read in a little bit here, but the compassion he has for all of us, the compassion he has for you and for me, the compassion he has when we go through difficult times, the compassion he shows when we have great times and yet there's still something lacking. He is so compassionate to us. The Gospel of Mark is unique in, in some ways from the other Gospels uh, in that Mark basically is giving us quick snapshots of the miracles and workings of Christ. For example, and just to kind of give you an idea of what I mean by this, uh, we see in Matthew's gospel, the temptation of Christ comes in chapter 4. 
In chapter 4 of Matthew, we get to the point of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Mark covers that temptation in the first 15 verses of chapter 1. You get to the end of chapter 15, or chapter verse 15, he's already covered that. So that's what I mean there, where Matthew maybe built this case. He went through the genealogy, or maybe the word we would understand is lineage of Christ. He went through all of that. He kind of built out all these stories. Then chapter 4, he gets to the temptation. Mark just kind of this boom, boom, just giving us kind of the shotgun style. He's just hitting it, giving it to us. Here's, here's what he did, here's what he did, here's what he did. And so when you read this here, it's going to be a lot of information kind of really all close together. So Mark is unique in this. And so I encourage you, read through the Gospel of Mark. There's some amazing content here, and it's quick. It's just kind of hitting one thing and moving on, moving to the next. Mark gives us so many amazing examples of how Christ worked and ministered among people's lives. And again, we see over and over again the compassion of Christ for us while he was on earth. And I want to focus in on one of these moments. I want to focus in on what this miracle means, not just to Peter and those in the home, not just to Peter's mother-in-law, but also what else this passage reveals about our Savior. And so if you're taking notes, I want to talk about a compassionate Savior A compassionate Savior is a Savior that is available in the time of need. A compassionate Savior is available in a time of need. So if you're taking notes, jot that down. A a compassionate Savior is a Savior that is available in our time of need. This is so key. Look at verses 28 and 29 again. So chapter 1, verse 28. We didn't read this in our opening text, but I want to give us a little bit of an idea of what's happening right before this. Verse 28, and immediately, this is after a miracle takes place in a synagogue, which we'll get to in a little bit. And immediately, his fame spread abroad throughout all the region, round about Galilee. So Jesus performs this miracle in the synagogue. All of a sudden, his fame starts to go out and get to verse 29. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. You see, Christ leaves the synagogue. And as his fame is spreading through the city and the region of Galilee, he goes to Peter's house for the Sabbath meal. This is because I truly believe that in more ways than not, Jesus was pretty Baptist. Let's just be real for a minute, okay? Church is over. What do we do? Man, we got to get some food. we got to eat, okay? Got to get a meal going here. And so I know it's not really the same thing, but I just always find that very humorous. And so Jesus leaves the synagogue, and he goes to Peter's house for the Sabbath meal. He makes himself available to Peter, Andrew, and all those that will be at the meal. We might not catch that. That might not mean a lot to us. But he didn't, again, he didn't have to go to their house for the meal, Right? I mean, Jesus could have done anything he wanted to. He chose to be available to them in their potential time of need. He chose to make himself available. Warren Worsby points out that this is a good idea for Peter and Andrew to invite Jesus and to encourage Jesus, most likely, to come to their home for a meal. It's a good idea to bring Jesus home with them. It's a good idea for them to bring Jesus home with them. He said this for maybe practical application for us today, he said this, don't leave Jesus at church. Don't leave Jesus at church. Take him home with you and let him share your blessings and your burdens. Take Jesus home with you and let him share your blessings and your burdens. We can do this 
because he makes himself available to us today, just as he did to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and all those that would be gathered for the meal, including Peter's mother-in-law, he makes himself available. Now, Jesus could have done whatever he wanted to, but he chose to be available in their time of need. Now, let me be real for a second. I think most of us, with those that we love, those that we care for, a church family and friends, we want to be available. We want to be able to be there. But reality is, and I'm just going to kind of say this because I think some of us need to really kind of understand this. Reality is you're not always going to be able to be available, right? It's just how life is. You can want to be, but as we've said the last couple of months, if you try to be available to everyone every day, every time they have a need, it's not going to last. You can't physically do it. So you're available when you can be available. And when you can't be available, you can't be available. And it has to be that understood. What's the difference here? Jesus, while on planet Earth, made himself available to Peter and his family. But here's the point I want to make, and this is where I see a connection here. Jesus didn't go to every single person's house who left the synagogue and have a meal. You hear me? He didn't go to every single person's house who left the synagogue and have a meal with them. He went to Peter's house. So what about the rest of the people who left the synagogue and wanted to have Jesus over for dinner? Jesus was in the flesh. He he can't, in the person of Christ, we know God is everywhere at all times. But Jesus, while on planet earth, refrained himself into the person and the body of Christ. So therefore, when Jesus went to Peter's house, he was at Peter's house. He had knowledge of what was going on everywhere else. But Jesus wasn't physically at Peter's house and physically over here at, I don't know, Frank's house. Okay, I just picked a guy named Frank. Sure, there was a Frank that was at synagogue that day. Frank sounds like a good first century Jewish name to me, okay? Uh, Maybe that's a little culturally inaccurate. But anyway, do you you get where I'm going here? We try to be everywhere for everyone all the time, and we end up burning ourselves out in such a short time. Look at the opportunity you have and say, Lord, give me wisdom in this, and I'm going to invest in the opportunity and the lives of those you've put around me. I'll be available as I can be available. But you can't be everywhere at all times. So stop trying to be. Be where God has you at this point in time. Love on those around you. Love on those that you can influence. Love on those that you have a connection with, that you have a relationship with, that you can minister to. But don't try to be everywhere for everyone. Does that make sense? I think some of us, people pleasers like me, we struggle with this. It's taken me a long time to learn this. But here again, when Jesus was where he was, he was available. He made himself available. But he's not just available He doesn't say, yeah, I could be there. I'm kind of here in the background. He's actually physically, emotionally, spiritually present. And you might say, that's kind of like the same thing, available and present. To me, I see you can be available, but man, when you're present, you're aware. You're looking, what is the need here? What can I do while I'm here? How can I minister to these people? How can I love on these people while I'm here? I'm not just available, I'm also present. I'm aware that there may be a need. Look at verse 32. See, he's not just available to those in the home, but he's also present in a time of need. Verse 32. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. See, he was available to those in the house, but when the opportunity came, he was present for whoever needed something in that moment. So again, notice this. They, they bring people to Jesus. After the meal, we see people from all over the city being uh, brought to Jesus, the sick and the possessed for healing. The Bible tells us that they came at sundown, 
because it would have been unlawful for them to travel and come when it was still the Sabbath. So this would be, for our understanding of our calendar today, this would be Saturday evening. After the sun's gone down on Saturday, uh, the Sabbath day is Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. And so they come on Saturday evening, the sun has gone down. Now they can lawfully travel. Now they can lawfully bring their disease to be healed. And they bring them to Jesus, and he's available, and he's present. Now let me ask you a question real quick. Just you think like for a moment that you're Jesus. And I know that's difficult. For me, it's extremely difficult. But I want you to imagine you're Jesus, and you've had the day that Jesus has had. You've been in the synagogue, you've ministered, you've healed. We'll get to that in a little bit too. You've taught, you've had this meal, you've been with people. And I'm sure when people are with Jesus, they're constantly doing what? Asking questions, asking questions. You get to the sundown, you're kind of just there. All of a sudden now, basically the whole city is bringing people out to be healed. Aren't you getting a little tired? I'm just being real. I'd be tired. I'd be weary. I'd be like, look, you know what? I mean, I, I really preach. Can we come back in the morning and do this? You want to, I mean, I'm just being honest here. I, I mean, he's been sick for 35 years. A couple more hours. I mean, it's not really going to matter. Right? Can I take a nap and then bring it back? We could be selfish this way. Now, again, so we need our rest. And I'm not saying we go 24-7, 365. Okay, I understand what I'm saying here. But Jesus could have said, man, I'm really tired right now. But rather than that, he pushed through that and said, no, I'm going to be present in a time of need. I'm going to be available and present in their time of need. In the original Greek language, the, the verb that indicates when they were bringing people, the verb indicates that they kept on bringing people. It wasn't just that they brought a group and then that was it. They kept on bringing people. Jesus would have want to sleep. It's very late but he continually just keeps allowing them to come and he keeps ministering to them and ministering to them. You see, a compassionate Savior, greater than we can be, greater than we can be, is available and present in our time of need. A compassionate Savior is a Savior that is available and present in our time of need. A compassionate Savior is also not only available and present, but as well as a compassionate Savior is there, he is able to heal. He is able to heal. And again, this is where the differences become very clear. A compassionate Savior is one that is able to heal. Look at verses 31 and 34. So not only is he available and present in their time of need, he is able to heal. And it came and took her by the hand and lift her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. Verse 34. And he healed many that were sick of divers diseases. Not only did he heal Peter's mother-in-law with a fever, but he healed many that were sick with diverse or various types of fevers. Jesus performed many healings while on earth. Many healings Jesus performed while on earth, from blindness and lameness to raising of the dead. We see Jesus perform many physical healings. There are three main reasons Jesus performed miracles and healings while on earth. Three main reasons that I kind of come up with in my studies. Number one, to affirm his deity, to affirm that he is God. He performed miracles and healings, I believe, to, to affirm, to confirm that he is God, that only God can do these things, and therefore Jesus is God because he did these things. Also, we believe, and I believe, that Jesus performed miracles to glorify the Father in heaven, to promote the glory of God. And then thirdly, and not any less important than the rest, but to bless those that he healed. To affirm his deity, to glorify the Father, and to bless the one that is healed. 
That's why Jesus performed miracles. It wasn't a show. It wasn't a spectacle. It wasn't a display so that he would become popular just to be popular. He did these things purposely and with great intention. He healed with purpose. He healed with intent so that God would be glorified, his deity, his godness would be affirmed, and that those that were healed would be blessed. There was no disease he could not heal. And not only could he heal it, he could heal it instantly. He could heal it instantly. Now, I know in nowadays culture, church culture, there's a lot of things being spread around, social media, YouTube, all these things of all these supposed healings that are taking place. And I'm not saying supposed because I don't believe God can heal someone. I'm saying supposed because I don't know if I believe the person doing the healing is really even a believer. I don't know. But it's amazing to me when I see some of these videos and these supposed faith healers, and again, God can heal anyone at any time through any means he chooses. But when I see it being turned into a spectacle, when I see it being turned into more of a display to promote the supposed healer and not glorify God, I really question God. I don't know their heart, but God, you do. And I just, man, God, if this isn't of you, I pray you'd put an end to it. If this isn't of you, I pray you'd put an end to it. But I've seen so many videos where somebody's trying to heal somebody of something and they're saying they're doing it in Jesus' name, but it takes seven, eight, nine, ten, thirty-seven times of trying to heal this person of, I can't hear, now I can kind of hear, and praise God, God healed me. I used to hear nothing, now I hear a little something, obviously Jesus healed me. Is that the healing that Jesus did? Man, Jesus, when Jesus said, be healed, you were healed. When Peter and them said, hey, get up, they got up. Peter didn't have to coax the Holy Spirit to do it. Peter didn't have to convince the Holy Spirit to listen to him. He said it, it happened. When Paul healed, he healed. And so sometimes I think we got to realize it's not this delayed type healing that maybe we think of today. When Jesus healed someone, they were healed. Think about that for a second. Can't walk, can walk. No physical therapy needed. No, no, nothing. What you can't see, put this mud on your eyes, wash that off, and now you can see instantly. And so when you see Jesus healing here, he heals instantly. And why did he do this? to affirm his deity, to glorify the Father, and to bless the one that was healed. Now, Jesus can heal anyone. God can heal anyone of anything at any time. I believe God heals through giving us wisdom and knowledge in medicine. I I truly believe that if a doctor can perform a surgery that saves someone's life, God gave that doctor that ability to do that. That That's God-given. I don't believe that that's just mankind doing that. I do believe that God can heal through various ways, through prayer and through the laying out of hands and all these things that we see in Scripture. I don't doubt that one for one second. But I will tell you that God's will is the will that will always be done. And if God wills that someone be healed that side of heaven, that's for him to decide, not for me. All I'm going to do is ask God in what I believe his will is. I'm going to seek him in that, and then I'm going to let him be God and trust that his way is the best way, even though I don't understand it. I I don't understand it. And listen, we're not going to always understand. But that is why we trust and know that he is good. When Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, it says that she had a fever. Now, we might think that that's not a tough miracle that needs to be done. All right? I mean, blindness, lameness, raising from the dead, those are like top-shelf miracles. This woman had a fever. We would think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. This wasn't like I'm a little flushed with fever. This was like I am laying in bed. I can't get up. It's overwhelming me kind of a fever. 
This is, this is affecting her whole body. So much so that Jesus Christ is coming to the home and she can't get up and even prepare the meal because she's so overwhelmed with this sickness. You ever think about this in this way? How do you think Peter felt about this? Do you think Peter was a little embarrassed? You know, maybe she was supposed to already have the meal done and they show up and you got Jesus with you, man. You're bringing Jesus home. I mean, there's some guys in here that invite people over and don't tell their wives and it's just a normal person. And the wife, when they walk in, they go, oh, I didn't know you were bringing company. And then in the, the wife's mind, she's thinking everything in the house that needs to be shoved into a closet, pushed under the bed, how can I clean all this up in 35 seconds before they take their shoes off and go in my living room? This is what goes through a wife's mind. Uh, most men are just like, meh, it's fine. It's not that big a deal. Okay? You're Peter. You're bringing Jesus home with you. I always wondered, was he a little embarrassed? Oh, man, she, I didn't know she had the fever. We didn't know she was as sick as she was. Who knows what's going on here? But Jesus walks in, and even with the minor things that we might think are minor, Jesus brings healing. And he takes her by the hand. And what does it say? Instantly she rises up. And what happens next? She begins to serve them. You know why this is amazing to me? You ever been really sick with fever? I mean, like, you ever had really bad flu? Raise your hand. If you ever had flu, you get the fever, the aches, and the, all that stuff. Even when the fever goes, how do you feel physically? Kind of drained? Kind of tired? Like, you don't really want to get up and do anything, okay? And if you're a guy and you had a fever, it's like you've been dying for three days, right? I have heard it said that when, when a, a husband gets a cold... He knows what it's like when a woman gives labor. I've heard that said, that when a husband gets a cold, he can understand what a wife goes through when she goes through labor. At least I've heard that. I don't know if I've ever experienced that kind of a cold. When you see this here, I love this. There's no need for her to stop and kind of take a little bit to kind of get back to normal. She just gets up 100% whole and goes and begins to minister to them. Jesus took her by the hand. He didn't ask her to do anything. Didn't ask her to say anything. Do you notice this? He doesn't ask anything of her. He, he chose to take her by the hand and raise her up. He didn't say, okay, now convince me I should heal you. Talk me into it. Now, there's other examples where Jesus does ask questions, does kind of encourage people to show their faith through ways. Again, the blind man that was told to put mud on his eyes. I don't know why Jesus heals one way here and one way there. I'm not God. I don't know why he does that. But for whatever reason, Jesus knew this woman's faith was in him and therefore allowed her to be healed this way. So not only do we see a Savior that is compassionate is one that is able to heal, but also a compassionate Savior is one that is able to cast out demons. Now we see this in this passage, verse 34. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases or various kinds of diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. That's an interesting passage, interesting verse. Jesus had many encounters through the Gospels with demonic forces, from Satan in the wilderness to the demons that were, minister, that were ministering, that when I was ministering among the people that were, you know, affecting the people he was ministering to. Each time we see demonic forces in Scripture and have an encounter with Jesus Christ, they become completely in subjection to Christ. This is awesome, by the way. Every time you see a demonic force in Scripture— they instantly, when they are in the presence of Christ, become in subjection to Christ. You never see a demon try to raise up and have authority over Christ. Never. It's always words of subjection and submission. 
Even Satan. You might say, well, wait a minute. But Matthew chapter 4, you know, Satan was tempting Jesus, and he was the one calling the shots, and he was the one calling out the temptations. Read that entire passage, and you'll find out towards the end of that temptation, Jesus says, you depart. And Satan left. You see, Jesus was in control of the entire temptation the entire time because he is God. He allowed himself to be tempted by Satan. And when he decided this temptation is over, Satan had to leave. Because he's a created being and God is the creator. And so demonic forces all through scripture, we never see them raise up an authority over Christ or even really try to challenge Jesus' authority. They instantly are in subjection and in submission to him. He has the power. They instantly acknowledge that he was God. They instantly acknowledge that he was God, that he was who he was. And then they also, almost every time, asked for mercy. Isn't that interesting? They acknowledged he was God and asked for mercy. That's powerful when you think about that. Even a demon, fallen angels, realize that God is compassionate, that God is merciful, and yet holy and just. This is why I love what James says in his epistle in the New Testament. James says that you tell me you believe in God? Great. The de- I'm paraphrasing. The demons believe in God and they tremble. What I love about that is this. James was basically saying the demons have one up to you. You say you believe in God? Yeah, well, they believe in God and tremble. You don't even tremble before God and yet you say you believe in him. You see, this is, this is evidence that Jesus Christ is God, not just created by God, Not just a prophet, a teacher, a good moral man. He is God himself in that even the demons tremble before him. In Mark chapter 1, look at verse 23. This is the, I referenced this a little bit ago about him doing a healing in the synagogue. So Mark 1, 23. says, and there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, verse 24, saying, let us alone, let us alone. And he cried out, sorry, sorry, lost my spot. I was trying to jump ahead there a little bit. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Do you notice this here? He identifies Jesus as being Jesus of Nazareth, but also what? What does it say? The Holy One. The Holy One. You are the Holy One. You are the Anointed. When you are God in flesh, you are Jesus Christ. And do you know what the demon's saying here? He's saying, what have you to do with us? You know what the demon's saying? What are you going to do to us? You've come here. What are you going to do to us? What are you going to do to us? Are you going to destroy us? Are you going to make us, like, wipe us out of existence? Are you going to punish us? What are you going to do to us? Instantly acknowledging his position as God and his authority and power over demonic forces. Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet. This is also what he says in verse 34 when he says he suffers them not to speak. Now, this might confuse some of us. Well, why would Jesus not want the demons to testify of who he is? He tells the demon in the synagogue, hey, be quiet. Basically, you need to shut up. Okay, I mean, I'm being a little more maybe brass than Jesus would, but you need to shut up. And then he tells the other ones, I permit you not to speak. 
So what comes to my mind is a couple of things here. One is it wasn't Jesus's time or the time for those proclamations to be made as Christ wanted them to be made. And so he's, he's saying it that way. It's just like when he would heal somebody and he'd say, hey, just go back and worship in the temple and don't make a big deal about this. Now, how many times did they listen? Because they're people like us and we don't listen, right? It'd be like, we have a great moment. Just like, hey, listen, okay, I'm so glad you're thankful. Can we just keep this between us? You're like, yeah, sure, no problem. Let me just put it on Facebook real quick. What was that? What'd you say? Okay. I just put it all over Facebook. It's Instagram. It's, it's gone. Well, did you want me to not keep telling anyone? So he tells the disciples at times. He tells people he heals at times, and he tells the demonic forces. But also, I think sometimes that Satan's plan isn't just to try to denounce Christ. It's also trying to detract from Christ. What happens with Paul and Silas and Acts when the woman that was possessed by a demon is following them around and declaring boldly, these men are from God. These men preach the truth of Jesus. These, and she's making a scene. And what's actually happening is people are being turned away by that. They're actually like, man, we don't want anything to do with that. That sounds crazy, what's going on there. That looks crazy. And so Paul turns and rebukes her and casts out the demon. Why? Because it was actually detracting from the message they were coming to preach. It was actually taking away from. And so some of uh, theologians and different authors and commentators have some different opinions on this, but basically they believe that either it wasn't time for those proclamations to be made according to Christ's plan, or it was actually detracting and taking away from the glory of God being put on display through these meat healings. In whatever way possible we want to look at it, the point is Jesus Christ is in control. Jesus Christ is in control. When we note the healings of Christ, we have to acknowledge that Jesus showed power over the physical and spiritual worlds. Also, while Jesus healed many on earth physically, he can and do that as well today. As we've already said, he can heal anyone at any time. It is by his will at which he heals. I am not a sovereign Lord. I don't understand all things that are to be known. He is and he does, and so we trust him. Some may be healed this side of heaven by his will. Others may be healed that side of heaven. God is the one who determines that. The key is that we have all been healed of the greatest disease that humanity has ever known. In Jesus Christ, no matter your physical state or being, you have been healed from the greatest disease ever known, and that is the disease of sin. Isaiah says that we have been healed by his stripes, by his wounds. What is the healing he's talking about there? It's not as surface as physical healing. It's so much deeper than that. It's a spiritual healing. I was undone in my sin. I was an enemy of God. I was broken beyond repair. I was lost, destined for hell. Because of sin, the power, the presence of sin in me made me a point of God's wrath. God's wrath was on me. And yet Jesus Christ came and offered himself and that whosoever may call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You are a new creature. Sin is washed away. That is old. That is dead now. You are, you are dead to sin, Romans 6. Now there's a newness of life. You see, you may have to suffer physically. A result of fallen man is that our bodies break down over time. Disease, I believe, is a result of sin coming into the world. Because of that, we're in the flesh and we still have these trials and these struggles. There will be things that our bodies will go through. Some of you wake up this morning feeling not quite as, you know, jumping out of bed like you once did. Things are creaking and cracking and popping and all kinds of sounds, okay? You didn't even know your body could make those sounds and it's making those sounds. Our bodies break down. But whether we physically are healed or physically go through some things, 
spiritually, we are healed of the greatest disease that humanity has ever known, the disease of sin, and we are set for heaven because God has saved us through Christ. So you have been healed. You have been sealed into the day of redemption. A compassionate Savior is available and present. He is able to heal and to cast out demons. But also a compassionate Savior is one that is passionate. One that is passionate. The first thing I want to point out is he is passionate in prayer. We've read through verses 29 through 34. Go to verse 35. Verse 35. He is compassionate and he is passionate in prayer. Verse 35 says here, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day. Now, think about this. A great while before day, he's waking up and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Now, this might seem kind of just normal Jesus behavior. But while we read of this day that Jesus has had, remember the day before? teaching in the synagogue, performing miracles, goes to Peter's house, performs a miracle, has a meal, spends time with the disciples, spends time with whatever family is there. Now all of a sudden, sun goes down. The whole city is bringing people to be healed. They just keep on bringing and keep on bringing. And finally, at some point, there's an end to this. He goes to bed and he wakes up a great way, a while before day and goes out and prays. Now, after the day he had, he still gets up before sunrise and goes and spends time with the Father. I'll be honest, I'd want to sleep in. Can we just be real for a minute? After that kind of day, I'd be like, look, Lord, I mean, I gave you a lot yesterday. If I could just have 20 minutes, I would really appreciate a little 20-minute extra sleep time here. I'd want to sleep in, but Jesus is up. And why is he up? Why is he rising up to spend time with his Father Jesus gets up and goes to a solitary place to pray. He doesn't forget the Father following this amazing night of ministry, this amazing day of ministry. In fact, I believe he's honoring the Father in all these things. Now, again, let me be careful here because sometimes what we'll do is we'll take this and we'll say, okay, then you have to get up every morning before sunrise and you got to spend time in prayer and you got to do all these things. And if you don't do it just like this, then it's not godly. It's not Christian. It's not okay. Don't make this a law thing. The key in this, the principle in this passage is that even after a long day of ministry, a long day of spiritual success, Jesus stops and takes time to spend with the Father, to honor him, to praise him, and to pray to him. That's the key we take from this. Some of you are early risers and morning people. You get up really early and you're just at it. Some of you, your schedules, you work thirds. You, you get home at 6 or 7 in the morning. You can't get up at 7 in the morning because you just got home. So maybe for you, you sleep a little bit, then get up and spend some time with the Lord. Whatever it is, the key is don't make it a law thing. Make it a relationship thing. Spend time with the Father. Maybe for some of us, early mornings are possible. And that is the best time that we can spend time with the Father. Make it your schedule. Say, Lord, this is going to be a time we're going to spend with you. And I'm going to block this time out. I'm going to make this a priority that you and I spend together. Not because I have to for some legalistic reasons. I want to spend time with you because I want a relationship with you to grow. And I want to know you more and more. I want to grow in the knowledge of your grace. What happens here is interesting, though. Peter goes with him because it's Jesus. And Jesus really never had alone time, did he? I mean, I always feel bad for Jesus. The guy goes to a solitary place to pray. And the very next verse, verse 36, and Simon and they that were with him followed after him. 
Again, if I was Jesus, I'd handle this differently. Guys, give me 10 minutes. Like, just go do something else. I feel like I'm talking to my kids. Like, go find something to do, please. 10 minutes is all I want. But Jesus doesn't respond that way. Peter comes and he follows him. And I can only imagine if this moment was on Peter's mind, as he's seeing Jesus pray and spend time with the Father and Peter's there, if this is on Peter's mind when he and Jesus sat and talked after the resurrection. See, it's interesting. Peter was there. Peter wanted to be with Jesus. Peter wanted to be close to Jesus. Peter wanted a relationship with Jesus Christ. He wasn't perfect. He said and done all kinds of stupid things, like we all do, by the way. But where was Jesus? That's where Peter was. Peter wanted to be where Jesus was. And so he's following after him. He's, he's literally putting into practice what Jesus said. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So Jesus leaves and what does Peter do? He followed Jesus. I've always loved that. Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So Jesus goes to pray and Peter's like, where's Jesus? I need to be with him so I can be the fisher of man I need to be. So he follows after Jesus. I don't think he was trying to annoy Jesus. I don't think he was trying to bug him. I think he just wanted to be near him. So we see this happening here. Again, Jesus spending time praying and asking God to work in these things. Peter follows after him. Again, I'm sure Jesus in the flesh is weary, but yet is obedient to spend time with the Father. I love what Isaiah 50 verse 4 says. Isaiah 50 verse 4. And again, we see Jesus putting this principle into practice, and maybe you and I can learn from this in our own lives. And by God's grace, apply it to our life. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Morning by morning. Isaiah saying here, and Christ is fulfilling this as an example. He's saying, listen, I'm weary, but I've, I want to receive a word. I've received the teaching from the Lord that I can continue morning by morning. He awakens me and he opens my ears to what I need to hear. This is Jesus putting this into practice. You see, Jesus was passionate in prayer. Jesus was passionate in spending time with the Father. But also, Jesus was passionate and is, present tense, passionate to reach the lost. A compassionate Savior is one who is passionate in prayer and passionate in reaching the lost. Look at verses 38 and 39. We'll read verse 37 as well, actually, to get context. Verse 37, and when they had found him, now they've Simon and those that are with him had found Christ, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. All men seek for thee. Is that true? Is that true what Peter's saying? Yeah, kind of, right? It's, it's a half-truth. Peter doesn't realize it. What Peter means is everyone's seeking for you because you're the miracle worker. You're the one that can do these great things. They want to be with you because you provide for them. You give to them, right? They seek after you. But what does Paul say in Romans? Paul says no man seeks after God. So how can Peter say, all men seek after you, but Paul say, no man seeks after you? Because what Paul was saying is, no man seeks after you as Savior. No man seeks after you to have their sin revealed. No man seeks after you because they know they need you, apart from the working of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, I should say. But see, what Peter's saying is, all men seek after you for a sign. All men seek after you for a handout. All men seek after you for a miracle. Some maybe had faith, some didn't. 
So what does Jesus respond with when Peter says this? Say, hey, everyone is looking for you. Everyone wants you. Everyone wants you to be with them. Verse 38. And he said unto them, let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. After this time of prayer, Peter shares with Christ that there are more that are looking for him. He says, all men are looking for you. If we heard that, we would be tempted to rush to please the crowds. We would feel the pressure to perform so they would continue to like and accept us. Christ does not respond this way. Christ, knowing that the heart of the people is more about a show than a heart of faith, decides it is better that they travel to another town to preach the gospel. One author said it this way, Peter did not realize the shallowness of the crowds, their unbelief and their lack of appetite for the word of God. Jesus said it was more important for him to preach the gospel in other places than to stay there and heal their sick. He did not permit popular acclaim to change his priorities. Man, if, if we heard this today, we would just, we would park there and we'd wait until we got all the praise and all the, oh yes, just keep, oh yes, love me, love me, love me. But see, Jesus wasn't about just receiving popular opinion praise and acclaim. He was about reaching the lost. And he said, they've already had their gospel preached to them. I'm paraphrasing here, but this is what I believe he's saying. We've already shared it with them. We've already brought healing here. It's time we move on to the next town, that they would have an opportunity to hear the gospel, that they would hear the preaching of God's word, that they would experience the miracle working of God. We need to move on because apparently, at least in Jesus' mind, the crowd was more about give us a show than it was about, no, we want to trust in you as Savior. And we see this all throughout the gospels, don't we? We see this in the, the New Testament. We see this in the church today. We gather for entertainment in churches today. We gather for social reasons. We gather for all these things. We gather to have our, you know, our spirits lifted, which is fine. We gather for all these things. Or do we gather for just the time to center on the Word of God and say, God, we're going to lift you up? Now, I believe when we gather on the Word of God, and that's our focal point, we will be encouraged, amen? We will be lifted up. We will be, our spirits will be raised up, and we'll find ourselves being encouraged and loved and energized and excited to go out and do what God wants us to do. But so many church models today, so many church models today, it's more about getting a crowd and building an audience for some. And I'm not speaking of every single church. In big churches, this isn't always true of them either. I'm just, what I see come across my desk from conferences and rallies and church growth things and all these things, I feel like I'm being sold more of a franchise than I am a church. It's about just box it up, ship it up, put a thing on it and, and send it out. Let's get, let's just keep it going. Let's get the machine moving. And there's nothing wrong with, listen, I, I'm not knocking big churches. I think God is in those. I think God is in small churches. God is in big churches as long as it's his church. See, the key is this. It's not about building a big crowd. It's about preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God, and let God build his church. See, we don't build the church, by the way. I don't build the church. You don't build the church. You might think, well, but I invite people to come out. That's great, and that's how you can have a part in God building his church. But it's God who builds his church. It's God who planted it. It's God who equips it. It's God who uses it. It's God who's glorified in it. And it's God who grows it. And so here we see these crowds wanted to gather together. And in our human thinking, we would think, oh, that's great. That's good. Let's look at all the people that have come. But God says, no, no, no. It's better we move on. It's better we move on. 
You remember even Jesus said when the religious leaders were saying and the, the Jews were saying, give us a sign, give us a sign, give us a sign. It was almost as though he said, I'm done entertaining you. <laughs> I'm done performing for you. I'm not, I'm not David Copperfield up here making things disappear. It's, it's not about that. Here's your sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. There's your sign. And he moves on. And I think we have to be okay with that and realizing that, no, listen, he is passionate about reaching the lost, not about building a crowd. Now, I will say this. When we have crowds that come to church here, like what's here today, and all, you, you, are here, you have gathered together today, we have a number that we, we, will, we will count the people and say, okay, we had this many at church on Sunday. We don't count that number so we can go, oh, man, look at all the people we had in church on Sunday. Do you know why we count that number? And I, I pray, pray for the number because every number represents a person. And every person represents a story. And every story is about God and how God has brought that person here, how God has brought you here. And so I pray you understand this. It's not about building an audience. It's about allowing God to build his church. And every one of you matter to him. Every one of you are vital and valuable to him. And he's passionate about reaching the lost. This morning, my challenge to us, as we get ready to wrap it up with the time of invitation before we go to communion, my, my challenge to all of us is that his compassion and love for you is evident and clear to you. That we may feel that he is not available or that he is now available and present in our moments of need. He is always there for you. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to thank him and I hope that we would all collectively thank him for his healing this morning. His healing, maybe physically, if you've experienced his healing physically, praise God for that. If you've seen him strengthen your body, your bones, and anything that you're going through, praise him for that. But more than that, I pray you'd praise him for the spiritual healing that he has given you and from the presence and the power of sin. Christ is and has prayed for you. He is here calling out to you by his grace if you do not know him as your savior. His love and his compassion are for you. And my challenge would be to receive him today as you understand that he is for you and not against you. His love is for you. It's an invitation to all. And so I'd ask that you bow your heads right there where you are. And we're just going to have a short time of invitation before we go to the Lord's Supper. And I pray that you respond to him as he opens your hearts and minds this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather. And we pray, Lord, that we would just be open to what you have for us. Lord, that you would just speak into our hearts and minds that we would know that you are compassionate, that you love us, that you are available and present to us, that you have the power and the ability to heal, that we can trust you in all things, that you not only pray or prayed while you were on earth, but Father, you, you, Lord Jesus, you tell us that you pray now to the Father, that you pray for us, that you're there for us, and that your passion to reach the lost has not diminished and has not changed. You'd still desire that others would come to know Christ, and so I pray that you would use our church as individuals, as we go out this week to reach people for Christ, not with our own understanding and our own opinions, but with your message of the gospel. I pray, Lord, you'd be glorified in all these things. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As the band leads us in a song of invitation, would you respond to what God is doing this morning as we listen, and not only listen, but apply what he has shared with us today? Would you respond to him?